Jesus' name. Amen. So by way of uh, sort of thinking about what we, where we're going to go today, um, we know we're in, in Revelation and we've always said that there will be those times when we go off track a little bit and we go and delve into a part of God's Word that is referenced in Revelation but is not... It's not filled out in Revelation. So we dive off, we go off, off track to, to find the picture, to put the dots together, to get a better understanding of what God has referenced in Revelation. And for those visually minded amongst us, um, this is something that I love doing. And you're driving along a highway at 100 k's an hour and you look over your left shoulder and there is these mountains and they're glorious and there's national park flowing all over them and it's beautiful, but you're on a highway. What do you know of that national park? So you jump off the highway and you jump onto a smaller road, onto a dirt road, turns into a four drive track, you're bouncing up through the ruts and over rocks and spinning wheels and all that awesome stuff and you get to the end of that and then you hop out of your car and then you walk through it and you smell the fresh air, you can feel it on your face, you can touch the bark on the trees, you can feel crystal clear water running over your feet as you walk through a creek and you get an appreciation for it. And that's what our aim is to do when we jump off out of Revelation. Our aim is to go and investigate those other pieces of God's Word and understand them better and to, to get a better feeling for it and to fall in love with it and to understand it better. So we're going to probably do a little bit of that today. We're going to go full circle, a bit of a boomerang today. Um, our passage today, um, for those of us that have been following along and are in tune with where we're going, um, is Revelation chapter 8. Um, we're going to attempt this in two kind of ways. Um, I'm going to look at it in two weeks, over two weeks. Um, today, this week, we're going to probably sp um, spend our time mainly in the first five verses and sort of fly out and come back to there. And then next week, we're going to look at the whole chapter in light of the groundwork that we build on uh, today and, and this week. So, with that in mind, let's read Revelation chapter 8. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. And then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder and rumblings and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Now we notice here the breaking of the seventh seal and, and anticipatory silence in heaven for about half an hour. And we have the setup before the get down. Um, the seven angels standing before God are given trumpets, ready to blow them when they're told. And then in come into this, this room of where the judging is well underway, into this room comes another angel and he interacts with prayers on an altar. So it's this image that we're going to pull out and, and look at today. Um, so with that in mind, let's pray. Lord, 
Thank you that we can talk to you, the mighty God of the universe, through prayer. Lord, I pray that our minds would be open and our hearts would be open to receiving your truth and understanding it and applying it to our lives. I pray for realizations, what your word means to us in our prayer lives today, Lord. I pray that you would convict each one of us in ways that we can improve and the ways that we can fall more in love with you, how we talk to you. Amen. So, what is, what is with an altar in heaven? Like, I thought there is no need for altars in heaven. Like, what, do we need to do, have sacrifices in heaven? I thought, in heaven, there's no sin there. What's going on? Why do we need an altar there? Um, and besides, Jesus is there, the lamb that was slain for all sins and paid for everything, the final sacrifice, he's there opening seals. So what is with an altar? What, what's going on here? Confusing if we were looking at this verse in isolation, we would have no idea. But God has seeded in history past an image for us to look at and gain a better understanding of um, what this is all about. In, in Hebrews um, chapter 8, the writer go, says that the priests down here on earth, they serve a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. So, this, um, this altar, this heavenly golden altar was copied. And an image of it, or uh, something to resemble it, was made on earth. And from that, us little, our little small minds as humans, we can see how this works and we can sort of understand how that works. It's a simple copy of the heavenly, okay? So, to do that, we're going to jump back in time from today about, we're going to jump in our time machines, we'll go back about three and a half thousand years, back to the Exodus, all right? Now, it was there while the Israelites were wandering around in the desert that God told Moses to build a demountable temple. And that temple was called the Tabernacle. Now, this... Um, this tabernacle had a courtyard around it that was about the quarter of the size of a football field. Um, if you imagine its length of the courtyard being somewhere from the goal line to about the halfway line and its width being somewhere from the sideline to about somewhere in the centre of the field. We understand that, those dimensions. And this courtyard had one gate into it. And then sitting in this courtyard was the tabernacle building itself. It was about the size of two large shipping containers, side by side. And so, um, this idea of this tabernacle, or as it means, just meeting place, was new um, to the people. They'd obviously come out of Egypt and they'd, they, weren't, they were familiar with what a temple was. Um, they probably even helped the Egyptians build the temples, provided the labour force for building it, they provided the bricks for it. Temples weren't new to them. But a place where a living God came down to meet with his people, that was new. And so the tabernacle building itself was divided into two rooms, okay? There was the first room, the holy place, which was the larger of the two. And then there was a heavy curtain. And then there was the, um, the most holy place or the holy of holies, a smaller room, a second room. Now, as the priest would enter into the tabernacle, where are we facing? West's over here. Okay, so he would walk in a westerly direction. He'd walk into, on his right-hand side, on the northern side, there would be a table with some bread on it. 
and on his left-hand side, the southern side, there would be the lampstands. And directly in front of him, at the other end of this first room, this holy place, there was a golden altar. And then behind that golden altar was the heavy curtain that separated the two rooms. And then that went into the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, which had the Ark of the Covenant and its contents in it. Now, this most holy place, the second room in the tabernacle, this was the very place where God, Yahweh, would descend down into and meet with his people. This most holy place, we can draw a parallel to it in in the heavenly realm of the very presence of God. So, in, in heaven, our Revelation passage, we're talking about in the very presence of God before his throne, the most holy place in the tabernacle, the very presence of God reside there. So, okay, so we've got those, those two pictures. Now, this most holy place, it was so holy that only the high priest could enter and only he could enter once a year on the Day of Atonement. That's how holy that place was, God's immediate presence. So, let's return back into the holy place behind on the, the, the safe side of the curtain to that little golden altar. And that's what we want to look at today. That's the copy of the heavenly that we want to investigate and understand what this golden altar in heaven is doing, what it is. All right, so we're going to read now from Exodus chapter 30. Follow along if you want, or you can just listen. Um, this, what we're going to read is the handover from God to Moses, the blueprints, the CAD drawings, whatever, depending on what vintage of designer you are, and look at um, what, how God specified this little altar to be made, the dimensions, uh, what it was meant to look like, uh, how it was meant to be used, etc. So, this is God talking to Moses, a top Mount Sinai, Exodus chapter 30, and we'll read from verse 1 until I find where I've got to stop, all right? You shall make an altar on which to burn incense, and you shall make it of acacia wood, a cubit shall be its length, and a cubit its breadth. It shall be square, and two cubits shall be its height. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and around its sides and its horns, and you shall make a moulding of gold around it, and you shall make two golden rings for it. Under its moulding on two opposite sides of it you shall make them, and they shall be holders for poles with which to carry it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put it in front of the veil that is above the Ark of the Testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the Testimony, where I will meet with you. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it, a regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer any unauthorized incense on it or burnt offering, grain offering, pour out a drink offering, um, etc. We'll stop there. So, this little altar made of wood covered in gold, um, about on the top, probably about half a meter square on the top and about a meter tall, that's the sort of size of it, um, was 
with, uh, with a horn in each corner, so four horns on a square altar. In very many ways, a similar sort of um, look, probably a more slender look to the big bronze altar out in the courtyard where the sacrifices were actually burnt. And then one of God's requirements for the running of the tabernacle was daily for the priests to burn incense on it in the morning and in the evening, twice a day. Every day of every week, of every month, of every year, of every generation, throughout the generations, okay? There was always to be incense burning on this little golden altar. Now, because incense burning on it all the time, it would have always smelt, look, smelt of incense, the holy place, the most holy place. It would have permeated into the skin and cloth walls, into the veil, would have always been smelling. It would have been irrevocably changed. And the smoke from the, inc- from the altar would have also crept around that curtain that separated the two rooms into God's most holy presence. So we understand that a little bit more. Now, incense. It's not really used too much these days and we're most of us probably know what it is and we, we, we don't really use incense to fragrance our homes anymore. We more use scented candles or air freshener or if you're just a smelly young guy, it's just like Glen 20 or something. Hey, I've got bad experience with Glen 20. Ask, ask my wife. But anyway, um, but that's the sort of idea that we want, okay? We, it, fragrance is just a, a scented smoke that goes into every nook and cranny everywhere, okay? Very similar to what an air freshener's job is. Now, years ago when Camille and I were house hunting, um, we went through a lot of houses to sort of work out what we wanted first. Um, But we went into some houses that had had incense burning burning in them in the past and some smelt nice and you wanted to stay in those rooms and some smelt terrible and gave you a headache and smelt rank and you couldn't leave the room quick enough. All right, so I guess in the world of incense, there is pure, premium, nice stuff and there is disgusting, cheap and nasty stuff, all right? But God was very specific with his incense recipe. He lists it later on in verse 30. I think it's one of the last things in, verse th- in chapter 30 of Exodus, sorry. Um, he was very specific with the type of incense that he required to be burned on his little golden altar, all right? It has to be made these ways. No one could use that same incense to perfume their tents or they were cut off. This was God's specific, set-apart, holy incense offering that he wanted. This was the way it was to be. And he was so specific about this. And there's even a couple of instances, um, or accounts in the Bible, of people who didn't offer this in the right way. You think of um, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu. They offered uh, strange or unauthorized fire. And then fire came out from before the Lord and consumed those dudes. Now, it's not singed eyebrows or singed arm hairs or, you know, um, frizzy hair and a blackened face like in the cartoons. It's not that. It was, the fire came out and consumed them. And then also, the other account that I think of is um, King Uzziah. 
where he, out of his, he grew proud and out of his pride, he thought that he could just stroll in there. I don't need no priest. You know, I'm the king. I'll just walk in here. I'll offer it myself. He tried to bypass the priests. He was doing things contrary to how God wanted them done. And thankfully for him, there was a brave dude called Azariah and 80 other brave priests who came in. They manhandled this dude out of there. And they say, mate, what you're doing is wrong. What you're doing is um, you're out of line. This is the wrong way to go about it. He's like, what? I'm the king. But because just in his heart, he thought that he could go about the wrong way. He didn't even do it. Like, otherwise, he would have been flamed, probably, like Nadab and Abihu were. But he, just because he thought about doing it, he was struck down with leprosy and he was excluded from the people and his son Jotham then took over. Talk about a humbling, hey? So, we understand the purpose of this little golden altar and it was for burning holy, specific incense and the incense was to waft all through the holy place and the most holy place. And on that specific day, that one day a year, on the Day of Atonement, when the high priest was to walk through that veil into God's most holy presence, there needed to be a good fire of incense burning on that little golden altar because that cloud was a barrier and a protection of sorts. In Leviticus 16, I think it tells you, I think. Anyway, look it up for yourselves. Just believe me now. Yeah, verse 12, there you go. Um, in that, that, that cloud that the high priest goes through, it forms a barrier of sorts and to protect the priest from the very direct um, proximity of God's presence, the unobstructed proximity of God's presence. That's the cloud was there still to protect the priest. There still needed to be something between God and men. And this cloud of incense was that barrier protecting the priest. Now, I thought about this the other day, actually. I was having breakfast with Tim at Sleepless City and at 6.30 in the morning, driving up from Anzac Avenue, turning up into Alderley Street, um, Normally, if I, if I was coming up there at about 6.30 in the morning, this, in summer, the sun is there on me. And normally, I put my visor down and I squint through polarized sunnies and I still pray that I don't veer into other traffic or hit a road train or whatever, <laughs> hit pedestrians, until I get to that roundabout where I can turn right and turn into the car park. And this, it, it, it sort of was clear to me that... But on this day that I was meeting Tim... I, this cloud, low-lying cloud, us Toowoombians just call it fog, and it was, I could, I could see the sun, I could make out the outline of the sun, I could look directly at the sun, but it wasn't destroying my retinas, because my eyes were protected from the intense burning, the heat, the solar radiation of the sun, protected by the cloud that was there. Now, that's a weak analogy because the stakes were so much higher for the priests when they go into the, into the most holy place because the God they're in direct proximity to is the God that made that sun and quadrillions, trillions, zillions more of them and holds them in his hand. You could imagine what this high priest feels like going into there on the Day of Atonement. So, we understand that the 
the incense being offered needs to be in the right way on this golden altar, all right? But what is the incense? What, what does the incense speak of? What's the analogy there? What parallels do we draw with the incense to the real life? We saw a few weeks, actually, when Parky took us through chapter 5, okay? God sitting on his throne, he's holding a scroll. Jesus comes and takes the scroll, and what do all those majestic heavenly creatures around the throne do? They bow down. And what are they holding in their hands? A golden harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which is the prayers of the saints. Exactly. And then... um, David, King David, in Psalm 141, brings this out to us. He confirms this to us. He, because his one of his prayers is that he requests that his praise be his prayers be received as incense before the Lord. All right, he draws the link, so that we get this link. All right, the incense goes with our prayers, and it is our prayers. All right, words that when we say them, if we if we speak out loud, words that sort of vibrate a few air molecules. That are floating around and then they fizzle out or a few neurons fire in our brains if we're praying silently and then they fizzle out. That's, that's all we can really view them in this world. But then they, they have this sort of ethereal, um, say it and it's gone, temporal kind of nature to them. But in heaven, they take on a physical nature. These prayers are stored in bowls. They can be touched, seen, smelt, heard and because, well, if they're smelt, we can smell, we can sort of taste smells in a way on earth. So it makes sense they could be maybe tasted as well. They can be stored, they're activated by fire and God's holiness. And when the time is right, their fragrance is released as a savour, as a sweet savour before God. So how fitting then that the priests were told to burn incense morning and evening in the tabernacle and in the Old Testament, and then come through into the New Testament, and Paul, in one of his letters to the Thessalonians, I don't remember which one it is, but he exhorts them to pray continually, pray unceasingly. Morning and evening, every day, every week, every month, every year, teach your kids to do this through the generations. So... The sweet savour is brought forth from the incense smell on the golden altar, which is where? On the other side of the veil to God's presence? Or is it? Let's take some time to refute a sometimes um, perceived contradiction um, in God's word around the location of this golden altar. So come forward with me in time to Hebrews post-Jesus' death. We're going to read from the start of Hebrews chapter 9. Now we have in our minds the, how the tabernacle was set up in the holy place. There was the table with bread on it and the lampstand and the golden altar. Now we're going to read Hebrews chapter 9. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness for a tent, the tabernacle, was prepared. The first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain 
was a second section called the Most Holy Place, having the golden altar of incense and the... Hold on a sec. What's going on there? Did the, Hebrew, did the author of Hebrews just say that the golden altar was, you know, the, the, the most holy place? Did it have the golden altar in it? Do we remember how the tabernacle was set up? Did the guy who wrote a letter called Hebrews to a bunch of Hebrews not understand how the Hebrew tabernacle was set up? Everyone's just quiet. And we don't have answers or... And see, this is one of those contradictions and some people who, are, who wish to discredit the Bible as being God's Word would look at that and they go, mate, Hebrews and Exodus, they don't line up. They must both be wrong. It's all fairy tales written by goat herders in the hoochie-woo-woo century, you know. It's what they say. But when we... Let's, let's take some moment, let's take some time though and we'll, we'll break the wording down and we'll have a look at it. Because when it makes sense, it is really awesome because it draws this great understanding of God's presence and, and our prayers and what they are. It draws a good relationship between the two. So let's have a look. Verse 2 of chapter 9. All right, when it's describing the objects in the holy place, now remember, this is the first room where the priests came daily. It, the, your Bible will use words, well, mine says, in which. It'll use phrases and words like in which or wherein or were. And they're denoting physical locations, physical presence of that item. That lamp, it was there. Uh, that table with bread on it, it was there. That's the gist. However, then in verse 3, we get this, um, the, the in, we're introduced with this, the second section, the most holy place. And then verse 4 continues with having the golden altar of incense. Now, your Bible might read which had or has or something, depending on your translation. So, now's the time, now's a perfect time where we could go all geeky Greek and we could stroke our academic egos a little bit and we could talk about Greek word this and Greek word that and get this context and this meaning or whatever, but let's just take a simpler view. Let's just break it down. Think simply. This is an example, okay? Let's think of this example. All right, Camille and I have, Camille and I have three children, all right? We have three children. One is out over there in that room in Sunday school. Um, our eldest son is out there in that room in Sunday school. Our second eldest, our other son is over there in that room in in crash and our daughter is somewhere else probably eating crayons oh no she's out in crash too she is over there in that room eating eating crayons in crash that's what they do in crash come to willowburn it's awesome but do you see the difference there all right we have but they're there the most holy place has the golden altar but it's in another room the holy place, it's in that holy place room over there, all right? The golden altar belongs to the most holy place, that second room, despite physically being in, in another place, all right? 
Now, we understand that link between the most holy place and the altar of incense in the Hebrews passage is a linkage of, isn't, isn't a linkage of uh, locality or um, it's not a physical linkage, it's a linkage of possession. It wasn't physically in there, but it belonged to it. It was owned by it. All right? So, in Exodus, the golden altar is described when the removalists, well, all right, we're setting up the tabernacle. Where do we put this thing? All right? It was described in a spatial sense. Whereas then coming through into Hebrews, was the author is trying to draw out all the spiritual truths from the Old Testament, from the Old Covenant, all right? He's describing it in, he's describing the locality of the, the golden altar in a theological sense. Does that make sense? So, to draw out and to understand the ramifications here of what's going on, just as Camille's and my children belong to us, even though they're physically located elsewhere, our prayers belong to God, even though we are physically located elsewhere. Or are we? Here's one of those yes-no questions that Parky had a go at us about last week. All right? Time to get him back, I think. Sure, we aren't in, in God's immediate presence in the heavenly throne room just yet. All right? Some people might think they are, but we dispute them. Um, Jesus, but, actually, sure, we're not in that throne room, but through Jesus' death and resurrection and God's gift of the Holy Spirit that we have, we have God's presence with us constantly. So Jesus tells us this in, in John 14. Go homework. Go and go over that again this week. It's awesome. John 14, 15-ish onwards, somewhere there. And read it and meditate on that because it's awesome. That will give you a sense of ownership. So this veil that was set up in the tabernacle, it doesn't exist anymore, all right? It was torn down when Jesus died. It was torn in two. Remember, we, we read about that. When Jesus was crucified, that temple tore from the top to the bottom. Sim sorry, that curtain in the tabernacle. Sorry, not the temple didn't tear in two. That's... Thank you, Mouse. That, that curtain was torn in two when Jesus died, symbolizing the removal of the barrier between God and men made possible through the death of Jesus, taking all of God's white, hot, furious wrath on himself, pouring it on himself, his sinless self. So, let's just take a walk of refreshing through the Bible, through all the scenes that we've talked about and jumped through and everything today, and see if it all makes sense now, okay? Exodus, the tabernacle picture of Exodus had this big heavy curtain there to separate people from God, God's most holy presence, separate and to separate him from people or separate people from us to protect us from him. And then Jesus died, smack bang in the center of our Bible, the center of eternal history, everything, Jesus died and taking on himself all of that sin, all of man's sin, everything, all the sin that ever was, all the sin that ever will be, he took it on himself. And in doing so, he ripped open that curtain and made the way to God through his own death. And then, come further along, the Hebrew writer then fills us in with all those pictures of Jesus, our great high priest. He is going through that veil with the cloud of incense, 
with him, taking our prayers to God the Father. And Hebrews also pulls out then the requirement that God's presence has over our prayers, the ownership that he has of his people's prayers. And then, full circle, our boomerangs come back around. We're back in Revelation now, in our Revelation image that we read about. Right at the start, it's in that heavenly courtroom, throne room, there is no separation at all between God's presence and the prayers of his people. The prayers are brought forward by this other angel, an intermediary, and they're offered to God. Now, some scholars seem to think that this angel is Jesus. I kind of, I don't really come down there because Jesus is already there. He's He's the final sacrifice. He's there. He's opening the seals. So I'm not sure. Unless maybe John is seeing two, two sort of vision streams. Maybe it's like inception except for visions. So John is seeing a, a vision where the seals are broken. Then the trumpets are blasted. And then the bowls are poured out. And then when each one happens, then he sees that acted out. He sees that seal happen. He sees that trumpet happen. He sees that bowl happen. Maybe, maybe it's like that. I'm not sure. But what I do know is this angel is an image or a picture of Jesus interceding for us before the Father because um, it's, he's doing the role that we understand Jesus to play. Jesus as the second member of the Trinity is bringing our requests to the Father and he's always living and interceding for us. Now, all right, you've got the background. That's our background build-up for next week, all right? You've got the picture that God seated in history. You've got the, um, the, we've got the image of the simple earthly copy of the complex, glorious, heavenly. And because then we know God's Word is a great heavy, sharp sword and just willingly bringing it near our lives cuts and it cuts deeply. So, knowing this, know, with these realities, these truths in mind, what deadness in your prayer life will this cut out? What will, what will happen with how often you pray? knowing that your prayers are a holy offering before God and He owns them. When, when those bowls of incense are brought forward in heaven, will there be many of yours, if any of yours, in that, in that cloud rising up before God? The, the one and only true God who has set His glory above the heavens. And how does pray without ceasing look in your life right now? Is... Do you always have that prayerful attitude? Are you constantly in communion with the Lord? Do sleep-ins or gym sessions or late-night Netflix binges or gaming or anything, do they take the place of the morning and the evening incense-burning praying in your life? What will change in how you pray, knowing that your prayers are rising up before God? Are your prayers a type of cheap, strange incense, like a putrid smell of pride and self-righteousness, or like 
like the Pharisee who stands boldly up before God and raises himself above all others and tells everyone how good he is and everything he's done right and tells God how much better he is and he's boasting on that. I'm so much better than that scumbag taxpayer, tax collector over there, taxpayers too. Are your prayers like that? Is there an ulterior motive to them? Or are your prayers uh, a sweet smell of humility and repentance and um, praise to God? Like that tax collector who keeps his head bowed, he cannot look anyone in the eye, cannot raise his face up, he's stooped, he's bowed, he says, Lord... Be merciful to me, a sinner. There's nothing in me. That Pharisee's right. I'm a scumbag. Is that the attitude of our prayers? Because that tax collector, he went home justified that day. The Pharisee didn't. And out of pride, think of King Uzziah when he came in. I don't need those priests. I can do this myself. He comes in, he's proud, he thinks he can do it on himself and he was humbled through disease and excommunicated. We, we must humble ourselves, guys. And don't expect God or anyone else to humble, um, to humble ourselves for us. Over and over, the Bible demands a humble attitude and if you don't have it, then God may choose to humble you. But a forced humility always comes through trials and punishments. Do not be hard-hearted in your pride. You guys understand this preaching thing, yeah? Like, I'm gonna t- I talk about what I struggle with and I'm in this boat with you. Don't be hard-hearted in your pride. We must... Approach the throne of grace with confidence through what Jesus has done for us, yes, but in humility so that we may receive mercy and grace. The Lord saves the humble. The Lord leads the humble. The Lord teaches the humble His ways. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand so at the right time He may lift you up. The Lord exalts and raises up the humble. The Lord adorns the humble with salvation. Pray, Willow Burn. May there be many of our prayers rising before God in His heavenly throne room because our prayers must be there because they help in bringing about the end of the age. But that's next week.